I want to encourage you to uh, open up your Bible to the book of Colossians. Um, this morning's sermon is going to be kind of an intro to the main thrust of the book of Colossians. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We don't have time for that. But I am going to read some selections of chapter 1 and 2. Uh, and so if you have your Bible open when I point to those things, you can follow along. Uh, the church in this town of Colossae, the inhabitants of which we call the Colossians, uh, have a lot of interesting struggles as a church. They are not like Corinth. They are not this bad behaving church, but they are a church that's being led astray by false teachings. And so Paul writes them to encourage them to remember the core of their faith and to discourage them from falling away from that. And so we're going to talk about what, about, what is the core of our faith? Because Paul has this huge vision for who Jesus is. And I think it is a good reminder for us today. And so we're starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Let me stop there. Paul has this huge vision for what Jesus has done for you. Think about some of the words he uses in this text. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance that should go to Jesus. You don't qualify yourself. God does that for you. He delivers you from darkness, transfers you to the kingdom of Jesus. Redeems you, that means he pays for you, pays a price to have you, and forgives you of your sins. Those are five amazing words. Qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. I would challenge you to put those five words everywhere you can see them. Put them on your desk at work, put them on the mirror at home, because that says so much about what Jesus has done for you. This is not some light, fluffy forgiveness. This is a huge, life-transforming event that Jesus has done. And how does Paul say Jesus has done this? We continue with verse 15. Huge, all-encompassing vision of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making making peace by the blood of the cross." This is a mind-blowing vision of who Jesus is. Jesus is everything. 
Everything is made through him, it's made by him, and it's made for him. There's not a thing in this world that wasn't at least originally intended to bring Jesus glory. He makes God visible for us. Whereas God is invisible to us, almost unknowable, we can know God because we can look at Jesus. Jesus' face is the face of God. He rules in everything. He reconciles everything to himself. On this special Christ the King Sunday, we celebrate this this huge lordship of Jesus Christ. That he is king over everything. Ruler and creator of all. Snatching us from the clutches of death. Bringing us to new life. And of his rule there will be no end. We've heard this before, right? You've been to church. And we think we understand this message of what Jesus has done. And this grandeur of who Jesus is. But oftentimes we don't. You could spend your lifetime exploring and considering how big this statement is. This grace, this good news of the gospel. And if you live a long life and you do a lot of study, you will only begin to scratch the surface of the enormity of the life and work of Jesus Christ. Paul writes these Colossians because he wants them to understand you got to understand how huge this thing is that Jesus has done. How huge this vision is of who Jesus is. And why is it important to them? Well, number one, because they need to understand that they need this message. Continuing on in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You were hostile, alienated, doing evil deeds in your mind and in your actions separate from God. But Jesus calls you blameless. Jesus fixes the problem. Now you might think, When you hear this text, I never was really that alienated from God. I never really did that bad of stuff. Maybe at worst you were just indifferent to God. But you know what? If Jesus is as big as Paul says he is, if he is Lord of all, then then indifference to God is the same thing as alienation. Because God in Jesus Christ deserves all your praise, all your effort, all your focus, all your honor, and to be indifferent to God, that is the same thing as being hostile to God because you're giving God what he doesn't deserve. But amazingly, in Jesus Christ, we get what we don't deserve. Though we are alien, alienated from him, though we are hostile, this picture that Paul gives is of Jesus coming and doing something about it. Jesus gave you a great gift by his, by his law-fulfilling life, his death-defeating death, and his resurrection, which guarantees a future redemption of this world. And here's the key for Paul. The key for Paul is that this is not just something that happens in the past, but it is something that happens to us now. It has now power. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith... Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. See, when we read those words, what it sounds like, if indeed you continue in the faith, what it sounds like is that you're required to continue in the faith to become blameless. 
Doesn't it kind of sound like that? But the English doesn't do this phrase justice. The reality is that the, the, the doing is a sign that Christ's work has already happened in you. This is exactly what the Colossians need to hear because the Colossians have become Christians. But after Paul leaves, Paul's only with them a very short amount of time, some other teachers come along and start telling them, okay, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to become Jewish. And you also need to become circumcised. And you also need to make sure that you don't eat this kind of meat. And you also need to become involved in the church. You also need to make sure you're in church. You also need to make sure you're involved in all these other things. And the Colossians get wrapped up in this. So that the grace of Jesus Christ diminishes in them. And their works become more important. Paul lays this out more, but I'm skipping ahead now to Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. This is, he sort of wraps that, the, this up here. He says, if, if with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of this world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. This is talking about meat sacrificed to idols. It's talking about all these rules and regulations. that You can't touch this and you can't do that. According to human precepts and teachings. These have the appearance of wisdom... In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. For Paul, all these rules don't save you. In fact, they can distract you. The problem that we have, I I think we as Christians today are a lot like the Colossians. We add rules. We add requirements. We confuse a called response to Jesus with something that was required for our salvation. We, we all know that we don't save ourselves. But I worry sometimes that we fool ourselves into believing that we can keep God's favor in the long run if we would just do good. If we just had right living or a particular political stance or if we kept our church attendance up, or we kept our reputation in the community up. Jesus plus my good works equals everything that God has for me. We confuse them. We fuse them and make them the same thing. We make them equal. And for Paul, he says, it appears to be wisdom. Shouldn't you live a a better life? Shouldn't you watch your conduct? Paul says it just appears like that. It's not really wisdom. There's an old saying that says, the worst enemy of the best is the good. We often, often in our brains, we think that the bad things in our lives are going to keep us from all that God has for us. That everything that this amazing Jesus as King wants to give us, it's bad things in our lives that are going to keep us from it. And certainly for the Corinthians, that's true. They're having terrible behavior. They're all over the place with their actions. But that's not true for the Colossians. It's actually their goodness that's diminishing the gospel in their lives. This is true of idols for us. Author Tim Keller says this, We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything that can serve as a counterfeit God, especially 
the very best things in life. It can be our goodness that keeps us away. If it adds to the gospel, if it's Jesus plus anything else is going to bring me everything, then Jesus gets a little smaller. He's not quite king anymore. It's Jesus plus my acceptance of Jesus or Jesus plus my response to Jesus. We try to save ourselves because truthfully, we don't want to be that reliant on other people. We don't want to need God. And unfortunately, I think the church has perpetuated this. Lots of sermons about go out there and do better. Go out there and do more. Without being focused really on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in reality, the more you add to Jesus, the smaller Jesus has to be. If Jesus is king, but you add a bunch of rules, then you have a constitutional monarchy. You have a president. You don't really have a king. We don't like to be helpless. but That is what we often avoid in our faith. See, the gospel is not just for non-Christians to hear about this amazing work Jesus has done, but it's for us as Christians too. It's why we celebrate communion a lot. It's why we come to church. It's why we sing the songs. Because we need to be reminded all the time that it's not based on our own good works. Now you have to do something. But it's not about being something that you're not. It's about becoming what you already are. You already have the title and status of son or daughter of the father. You are already forgiven, redeemed, paid for and saved. The Christian life then doesn't become about earning it. It becomes about becoming practically what you already are positionally. Becoming practically in your life and in your daily actions what you already are positionally, what you've already been giving. Yes, you respond by living your life differently. When you are drowned in the love of Christ and consumed by this grace that you find in Jesus Christ, you can't help but put away old behaviors, gain a heart for the poor, or become more generous. You can't stop from praising the Lord, getting involved in church, and caring about justice. What can you do but acknowledge that there are sins that are contrary to God's will? But these are always responses to the gospel. And they are not the gospel themselves. And when we confuse the two, then Jesus becomes much smaller. They are the cart, and the grace of Jesus Christ is the horse. And the one's got to come before the other. And the one's got to be more important than the other. As C.S. Lewis once put it, what distinguishes the gospel from legalism is that legalism said God, says God will love us if we are good, while the gospel tells us God will make us good because he loves us. Our problem is that we put them together and we mix them up. And that is why Paul writes to these Christians to remind them that Christ is king. I read a great book by a guy named Tullian Tavingen. He is a, uh, he's the grandson of uh, Billy Graham. And uh, he is also uh, uh, now the pastor of Coral Ridge Church, which if you've seen it on TV, was planted by Dr. D. James Kennedy. He planted the church and built it up and spoke on TV all the time, and then he passed away. Can you imagine being the pastor that had to go in after D. James Kennedy? Tullian had started a church uh, not very far from here and, and, and got asked to come be the pastor, but didn't want to do that, and eventually their two churches merged. So they became one church. One Easter, they finally met together. And, and Tullian says that it was great for about 10 days. 
And then the fact that there were two churches started coming out and then a bunch of people who were upset about the move started really fighting. There were all kinds of lies and slander about him. And because this was such a big church and because he was a uh, grandson of Billy Graham, the news media picked it up. And so there were all kinds of lies going around about him. And Tulian got really upset about this. Really wore down a very difficult time in his life. His father was dying at that time as well. Nearly tore him apart and he went on vacation and started reading Colossians while he was on vacation. Read these words that you're, you're hearing here and he, he just realized how mad he was at God. God, I had started this church and I loved it and you took it from me and now you're taking my reputation too. Give me my old life back. And what he discerned as he, as he studied Colossians was that God told him, you don't want your old life back. You want your old idols back. You wanted Jesus, but you also wanted success, and you also wanted a good reputation, and you also wanted your church to be successful. But what if you only had Jesus? What if that's all you had? And so he wrote a great book that's had a big impact on me in the recent months called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. That's his way of saying it mathematically, what I've been preaching this whole time. If you had Jesus plus nothing else, if anything in your life Jesus took away from you right now and you still had Jesus, you would still have everything that you need. The problem is when we say Jesus plus something else equals everything. All your greatest hopes and desires, the things that drive your life, Jesus is the only way that those things are going to be fulfilled. Jesus needs to be your everything. And if anything else is in there, you've got problems. Is there anything in your life today that if you lost it would make you almost want to give up the will to live? First of all, be thankful for those things. But second of all, realize that they are secondary. That they will never fulfill you the way Jesus can. This is vital that you get this grand sense of the gospel because like the Colossians, you don't want to be caught in a Jesus plus something because that something will never work. And imagine the difference it could make. Imagine the boldness if you no longer cared what anybody thought or what the results would be of the things you tried. Imagine the resilience you would have if people's comments just rolled off of you. Because I know who I am in Jesus. I don't care who I am with you. Imagine the gratitude that there is nothing in this world you and I should be more thankful for than who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing in us. In fact, when we focus on that, all the other things that we are thankful for become all the more rich. And we get all the more thankful for those things because we understand that they're all a gift from Jesus. I admit in my life that I have my own hands on the gospel. That I would like Jesus and success. And Jesus and my reputation. And I'm learning to try to give those things up. And say that if I had Jesus and nothing else. It would be everything. So this week. Give thanks to Jesus at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Thanks for your family. Thanks for God's abundant blessing. For health and home and happiness. But thank him also for Jesus. And at this table, the table of our Lord, we will give our thanks for Christ as King. And may that be your focus here at the table. Amen.